If you're a basketball fan at all, or really just in touch with any kind of pop culture, you would know that in the 90s, Michael Jordan was considered the greatest basketball player ever, and still many people think that. And there was a, um, an ad from Gatorade, I want to be like Mike, was this motto from that ad. And, and, and you know, it was something that became very popular and, and is referenced still to today. Now, switching gears, when I was at seminary, when you're a young, you know, intending to be a ministry uh, person in seminary, uh, there's this interesting dynamic that happens. You enter in a seminary and you meet some of the smartest, godliest, most biblically trained people you've ever met. And inevitably, what happens is you start wanting to follow and be like a particular professor. In my seminary, there were two professors who probably stood out above all the rest, which I'm sure the other professors hate to hear this, but it was just the reality. Richard Pratt was a very popular professor. He was funny. He kind of was always a bit mischievous in the way he taught and obviously brilliant. And he taught you know, those in seminary this kind of paradigm-shifting, mind-blowing way of seeing faith that most of us had never, ever heard of. And so there were many who wanted to be like Richard. There was another professor named John Frame, and he was another favorite. He was just, you could tell, philosophically brilliant. One of those minds that you could just see like was so sharp and just you know, was like an ironclad vault in holding information and processing it. And uh, again, you know, there were so many who just you know, followed John Frame around, trying to feed off every word that he spoke. And I didn't want to be like all the other lackeys who followed Richard Pratt around and followed John Frame around. And I had my own favorite professor. His name was uh, Mark Futado, and he taught Hebrew. And uh, he was just this kind, uh, funny, down-to-earth guy who, who was just a great teacher. And, and he taught you know, everyone in seminary uh, who took the classes Hebrew. And he just loved to teach. He loved Hebrew. He, and his, his joy for Hebrew and teaching Hebrew was so infectious. He taught us these Hebrew children's songs. And you know, anyone else doing it, you would feel like, this is so cheesy. I'm singing Hebrew children's songs. And yet just his joy came through as he taught us these songs to help us learn um, Hebrew. And so I, I wanted to be like Futado. Now, whether it's wanting to be like Mike or wanting to be like Futado, that really is quite similar to the Christian process of sanctification, of becoming and growing in holiness, which God calls us to. Um, except the person we are to be enamored with is not some flawed basketball player or flawed seminary professor. The person we're supposed to be like is the perfect God-man Jesus Christ himself. Often when we think of sanctification, we, we kind of think of holiness or sanctification as like, well, I need to stop sinning. You know, I need to stop lusting. I need to stop lying. I need to stop gossiping. I need to stop stealing. And basically, stop doing bad stuff is what we think of the process of sanctification. And yet, sanctification is so much more than stop doing bad stuff. It is really much more like becoming like the person of Jesus Christ, and all that that means. And that's what we're going to explore today. What does it mean in sanctification to say, I want to be more like Jesus Christ. I want to love like Jesus did. And hopefully what we'll see today is this main idea is that you are under grace, so die more and more to sin and live more and more into righteousness. That language should be familiar. We just uh, read that in the profession of faith today. So 
Let's start with, start with this question. Why is, it, why is defining what sanctification is important? Again, sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy. Why is this important at all? I think what happens is so often, whether because of wrong teaching or our own brokenness, um, we often do trust, as Christians, Jesus to make us right in the sight of God, what we call justification. And yet, somehow, in, in the process of seeking to be more like Jesus, we begin to trust our own efforts instead of trusting God himself to do that work in us. Or other times we may be, as we begin to understand the freeness of the gospel, the freeness of how we are made right with God, we begin to be tempted to think, well, if this is so free, then I'm just going to live whatever way I want. I'm not going to try to live in a way pleasing to God. And yet what that betrays is that we have not understood deeply enough the incredible love of Jesus Christ and the incredible oneness we have through faith in him. So we're going to dig into uh, chapter 6 of Romans here and uh, explore this idea of what is sanctification. And, uh, it, you know, we, if you, if you probably, you know, maybe when you go home, you can read Romans 1 through 5, and that really, in a beautiful, succinct way, paints a picture of what the gospel is, and, and we'll refer to it, too, in today's uh, message. But um, there's kind of this assumption of this flow of argument of Romans 1 through 5, like this is what it means to be made right with God um, by God's grace through faith in Christ, and then it goes on to talk about uh, what does it mean to become more like Jesus Christ, this process of sanctification. So we read this question earlier, it was from, um, I, I noticed that it wasn't, it didn't say in the profession of faith where these, uh, these uh, questions came from of what is justification, what is adoption, what is sanctification. So those are from the Creed, Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism specifically, which was used to teach children the faith. And so just, again, to, to read question 35, which is what is sanctification, the definition of sanctification is this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. I want to highlight the, this beginning phrase, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. And that's just a really important starting point because, again, often, whether because this is actually what we believe theologically or we've just misunderstood it um, in our own brokenness, but we often think this work of becoming more like Jesus is solely upon our shoulders. Now that we've been saved, we've got to white-knuckle it and become better people, right? And this definition reminds us, no. Sanctification as well is the work of God's free grace. By his grace, he is at work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus. Yes, you have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You're not robots. And yet, God is at work in you to make you more and more like Christ. And if you notice, if you look at the profession of faith, these three questions, both in justification and adoption, it says, it is a, um, a work of God's free grace. Well, actually, let me get the right language here. Anyway, it, it's, it's using an article that denotes that it is something that is, has been done already. Whereas here you see it saying the work, meaning the continuing work of God in us. Right? Justification is once and for all upon the cross. Sanctification is a continuing work in us by God's free grace. So I just wanted to point, that, point those out more a bit. 
Maybe some different ways, you know, this is kind of a, a creed way of putting it, but some other different ways of saying, what, what is this process of sanctification? So again, we can define sanctification as becoming more like Jesus. I think that's a great, um, sim- simple way of saying it, or as the language here, dying more and more into sin and living more and more into righteousness. Or we could say, and we talked last week about how we are in this broken world as Christians, always sinners and saints simultaneously. So we could say, the process of sanctification is also becoming uh, less and less of a sinner and more and more of a saint. What we already considered in God's eyes is saints, and yet we strive to live to become more and more what, what God sees in us. Another way we could put it, again, just biblical language, listening less and less to the flesh, the sinful temptations within us, and listening more and more to the Holy Spirit that is at work in us. We could put it a different way. Maybe think of it in more psychology perspective, Uh, stopping harmful, addictive behaviors in us and replacing it with healthful, life-giving behavior. We could also say it in a simple way, saying no to sin and yes to God. We could think of it as living less and less selfishly and living more and more out of love for God and for others. Another way we could think of it, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but if you, if you know the Enneagram, it's, I, I know for those who actually know what Enneagram is, you're going to feel like I'm oversimplifying it, but it's like a personality test. But it, it, I, I do think, I find it very helpful in my own life, in my process of sanctification to know, okay, this is generally my type, and this is what my type tends to struggle with. This is what it means for my type to grow. There's nine types. And, uh, and it's a useful wisdom tool. It's not biblical. Some, I think some people who, some Christians who are really for Enneagram oversell it a little bit, right? Like trying to almost find it in scripture. And I just see it as it's a wisdom tool that's useful as we resonate with the truths in those types. Uh, understanding all truth is uh, God's truth that we can use this personality tool, this wisdom tool to help us see where our short, shortfalls may be, our weaknesses, our, our sinful tendencies, and where is it our strengths, our, our dignity in our personalities and the areas which we can lean into. Maybe we'll even do a whole sermon on that, but I think there'll be great benefit to it. But we have traditionally in theology talked about sanctification also with these very fancy theological terms, which is sanctification involves mortification and vivification, which I can barely say, vivification, to vivify, to bring to life. So to mortify is to put to death sin, to vivify or vivification. It's, I just laugh saying it myself. Uh, Vivification is bringing to life the righteousness um, of Christ in us. Now, I think it's important as we think about sanctification is this, because often as Christians, when we hear about this idea of growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus, this idea of sanctification, we think it's like this, we're climbing these stairs one step after another to the peak of righteousness. And sometimes when that's the image that's in our, in our head, the weight and burden of reaching that peak is almost too much to bear. And um, actually, this Im- I'll have to give credit where it's due, but this image I'm about to reference is from Richard Pratt, one of my professors. And he said that often sanctification in a broken world is really less like that climb to the peak of holiness, because we can never reach perfection in this life. It is more like 
we're like have all these plates that we're trying to keep spinning in the air. And sometimes we keep them spinning up in the air and sometimes we drop these plates and we have to pick it back up and try to get it spinning again. And the process of, of sanctification, growing in holiness, is more like that in a broken life. We see all these areas in our life where we struggle to reflect the goodness of God and we're trying to grow uh, in holiness in those areas. And, and it doesn't always feel like we're, like again, climbing this peak to the right peak of righteousness, but more like just juggling things constantly, trying to continue to grow out of love for God. But let's talk more, dive in deeper into this text to talk about what is, what is mortification, what is vivification, what does it mean to die more and more to sin, what does it mean to live more and more into righteousness. So verse 6 says this, says, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. I find it really interesting that Paul, when he talks about um, this struggle against sin, that he is actually very matter-of-fact. He's very matter-of-fact in terms of what faith in Christ brings us. He's almost just like, duh, like, you've died with Christ. The power of sin in your life is done with through faith in Christ, through oneness in Christ. If you are one with Christ, then your old self that sinful nature has died with Jesus, been buried with Jesus. It's almost like, that's it. Why would you continue to live in that if that is the reality, if that is the truth? And he's saying, though, not only does God reckon, like consider in his eyes that you are no longer sinful, but also that in reality he's done something in you to change that power of sin in your life. He talks about this language of we were once slaves to sin and now we are slaves to righteousness. We once were prone to doing what was wrong and now we have the power to do what is pleasing to God. And that there is something through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts that changes something in us so that we can begin to live in a way that reflects who God is. Now, that truth doesn't take away the fact that we, as broken people, do in actual fact struggle with sin. This chapter talks about it in that way. Chapter uh, Romans 7, chapter 7, very clearly talks about this struggle uh, against sin that a Christian has as they live out this life. But again, in this text, verse 12, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 6, verse 12 says this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments, um, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Again, this section, this section that I just read makes it very clear that the struggle against sin is still a very real thing. We're not perfect people. We still can do what is wrong or displeasing to God. And we're called to make choices where we use the different parts of our body, our mouths, our eyes, our hands, our feet, to use all of what we are in a way that's used for good rather than used for bad. And the language here says, present ourselves to God. Present our members of our bodies. 
suggests a way of living that is worshipful to God, um, really recalling this language of how the Jewish people offered these, these ritualistic animal sacrifices. Now, that has been done away with, and so our worshipful sacrifice is presenting all of who we are, all the different parts of who we are in worship to God to be used for good in this world for God's glory. Verse 16 continues to say, do you, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So again, this, the language here suggests to us there, there is this journey for us. Yes, we have been delivered and we are freed from the condemning nature of sin and the, the, the bondage of sin, but yet, and we are enabled to choose what is good and right and pleasing to God. And yet, again, life in this broken world means a struggle to do what is right and good and pleasing to God, to not be slaves to sin anymore, but slaves to righteousness. And really, it's a shocking phrase to use, you know, right? Because being slaves doesn't sound very positive, but God is saying, this is what I've called you to, the kind of goodness and rightness that I've called you to, that your life is, is represented by um, a beauty and a goodness that makes you seem like you are completely committed to doing what is pleasing in God's eyes. Now, when we talk about sin, which again, not, not super popular these days to talk about, and yet is the reality of what we see around us. We can talk about maybe, maybe about three different levels of sin that kind of get deeper and deeper into our being. Uh, the most ob- obvious way of looking at it is, is sinful behavior, whether it's telling lies or lusting or acts of violence or words of violence, harsh words of others, um, gossiping. You know, any one of these examples are just obvious um, behaviors that are wrong, that hurt people, um, including ourselves. And yet we can take it a level deeper when we look at our thoughts and our motivations. And so we don't even have to act on it necessarily, but we, can, we know we can have judgmental thoughts of others. We can put others down in our thoughts. We can begin to know, know and feel that we are living out of a bitterness in our heart. Or we can be living out of a, out of a desire to bring glory to ourselves rather than to God or for the benefit of others. So that's another level down, just examining how our thoughts and our motivations can be broken. But perhaps an even more difficult level to go to is what I would call, um, from Dan Allender's language, but sinful styles of relating, broken styles of relating. And so it could be examples of that could be like, you know, my style of relating to people in the world is being nice or being competent, or being known to be a people pleaser, or being known to be almost like a little girl or a little boy, or being sensual in the world and being charismatic and, and you know, making things happen through that sensuality or charisma, or just being tough and independent and competent, and that's your style of relating to people and to the world. Now, any one of those styles of relating, and you may have resonated with one or one or many of those, none of these are wrong in and of themselves, right? Those are just ways of living or what some might even just say our personality. But the question is, when we talk about sinful style of relating, is what is our purpose for relating to people in that way? 
right? Sinful styles of relating is where we are not nice or good or vulnerable or charismatic or tough for the sake of others or for God's glory. We are nice, good, vulnerable, charismatic, tough so that we can get what we want out of others. Did you hear that difference? We're not nice or good or competent or vulnerable or tough um, for the sake of others or for the sake of the glory of God. We are nice or vulnerable or tough or competent or people pleasers so that we can get what we want out of people. That's what we mean when we talk about a sinful style of relating. It's when our story and our sinful motivations get baked together into seemingly what is what we just call our personality. So that when we are called out by someone, even if it's in the most loving way, our internal response or the actual words that come out of our mouth is just, well, but that's just my personality. That's just who I am. Imagine if it were God lovingly confronting you. Do you think it would be enough just to say, well, that's just who I am? God would say, but the change that I want in you is so much deeper than just your actions, just your thoughts. It's about the very way you relate to people and to the world, the way you love people. Think of the sinful style of relating as an overused muscle. I don't know if we have any gym freaks in here. It's that guy, right, who always skips leg day. And he just becomes so jacked in his upper body. He's got ripped chest muscles and biceps standing on little sticks of legs. Right? That's like a sinful style of relating. You're using the same muscle in relating to the world and people again and again and again and again to the detriment of other muscles of other characteristics that God could be at work in you to make you more like Christ. If we, the the funny thing about the guy who skips leg day is the guy who skips leg day justifies himself skipping leg day. He's convinced this is the right way to work out, which is why he keeps doing it. He's like, I look great, look at me. It's like, well, you look kind of silly right now. Maybe you should work on your thighs or your calves or something else down there, right? Like, you need to balance yourself out. You look ridiculous. Sinful style of relating is also about, are we willing to interact with others in a way that's truly honest and unconditional? When we do things, we always have to ask ourselves the question, Am I looking for something in return from this person right now? Or am I simply doing this for their sake and for the glory of God? Are you upfront about your motivations when you are asking something of someone or doing something? Are you angry when you don't get what you want out of someone? When you're trying to be so nice and yet... Seemingly, they're not responding to your niceness. When you're being so competent, and seemingly people are not responding to your competence. Are you angry when you don't get what you want from people, even though you have never asked them directly for what you want? That begins to show where your sinful style of relating may be. 
I think sometimes when we see um, older people in our life, we say, oh, I want to be like that person when I grow old. Like, that's, that's who I aspire to be like. You know, that, that gentleman in my church or that lady in my church, like, that's the way I want to grow into, right? It's that picture of sanctification. When you're young, relatively young, even at my age at 44, and you think you have years to go ahead of you, the question you often think is, do you think there's still plenty of time? I can still change, right? I want to become like that person in my church, that person in my community. There, that's what I aspire towards. I worked at a, an assisted living place. That was my first job out of college. And the amazing thing that I found about work, well, there was a lot of amazing things about that experience, but I think what one of the amazing things is, sadly, I think what happens in the process of Alzheimer's is that sometimes you see the essence of someone really coming through in that process. Sometimes it's just the sickness, so it's not that easy to tell. But sometimes you just see, wow, it seems like this essence of them that's coming through that seems to come out every day in my interactions with them, like this is the most important thing about this person. And so we have to ask ourselves, given what we struggle with and our sinful style of relating, what will be our essence that comes out one day? Well, just imagine, if you continue with no change the way you are, what kind of 90-year-old would you be like? Are you going to be the grumpy old man? Are you going to be the crabby lady at the grocery store? Or are you going to be something that you've always hoped and aspired for? And really, it doesn't matter what age you are in this room right now. You could be five, you could be 95. And the, the call of God is still the same. And is, that is, given where you're at, if you're 95 and you just became a Christian and you started this journey of becoming more like Jesus, then what is the next step of becoming more like Jesus? This call to dying more and more into sin is a very real call of God. I just watched um, a documentary on Netflix about Bill Gates. I don't know if you, any of you have watched it. It's really quite fascinating. And um, I didn't know this. Maybe I'm just ignorant, but apparently the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation devoted themselves to er eradicating polio in this world. You know, a kind of thing where in the Western world we just, what, polio? I thought we were done with that. And in the, the developing world, it's still a very real struggle that polio has not been eradicated in the developing world. And so Bill and Melinda Gates devoted their efforts and their monies to seeing this very treatable disease to be eradicated in this world. And you know, they poured money into it, they poured their talents, their, their, their brain power, all their resource that they're connected to into doing it, and they saw great success. Um, polio in India was a great problem for a long time, and, and it's been reduced almost to zero. And in the documentary, it talked about how they struggled with eradicating polio in Nigeria. And they, they experienced great success, and yet at the same time, part of the problem was um, the efforts of Boko Haram and, and the way they controlled certain areas and, and really started targeting workers who were trying to bring um, the vaccination 
to all these remote villages. And so that security risk of possible death of vaccination workers uh, really stalled the effort of eradicating polio in Nigeria. When we talk about our struggle against sin, it is something like that. It's easy to just be like, well, this is just the way I am. Take it or leave it, everyone. Jesus, take it or leave it. But God says, you have died to sin. You've been raised to life. But you still need to struggle against sin in your life. There are still pockets of polio in you that you need to pay attention to and to bring to Jesus and to be asking God to change and redeem and transform those pockets in your life. And part of that struggle is just beginning to identify what the problem is, right? We're, as a congregation, I think, pretty good at saying what help other people need or how we want to help others. But what about ourselves? What are the areas that God needs to work on in us so that we can become more like Jesus? So I want to ask you, what, what do you know? What is your sinful style of relating? What is your overused muscle? What is... Or maybe in a positive way, what is that picture of the person you want to grow old to become like? And how do you begin to address the things in your life now so that you could grow old to become that person? And part of that, again, is not just dying more and more to sin, but living more and more unto righteousness, this fancy word of vivification. So let's take a look at the verses that address that. Verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 8, Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. So again, this we didn't. Obviously, we all know we we didn't actually physically die. In Jesus' death, we spiritually, our sinful nature dies with him. And through faith in his resurrection, we too are brought into new life. He is our representative before God to make us right before God. And not just, again, considered right before God, but now with the Holy Spirit at work in us to make us more like him, to bring to life the goodness and the dignity of being human beings made in the image of God. So again, it's, it's our solidarity with the perfect God-man Jesus that makes us able and empowered to live a life that is good, that is transformative, that brings life to others and brings glory to God to be able to love, to do good, to think good, to be motivated by the right things and not just for ourselves, to be transformed in the wholeness of all that we are, not just our behaviors, not just our thoughts, but in the very way we relate to the world and relate to others. And the reason why we can do this, as it says in verse five, is this, for we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This resurrection here in verse 5 is referring to a spiritual resurrection we have through faith in Jesus. And this word united with Christ 
literally means grown together with Christ, with the force of fused into one with Christ. I feel like the older I get as a Christian, the more I realize the incredible beauty and power of the doctrine of being one with God, of being united with God, that all the hope and joy and grace and peace that I have is through my union with God, and that I am to take a hold of that truth more and more and to live out of that truth. I am one with God. And what great dignity there is in that truth and knowledge of God's love for me. So that process of vivification then is being consciously, you have to be aware of the areas of weakness in your life, whether it's in your behaviors, your thoughts, your motivations, or your style of relating. And then almost just say, okay, what is the opposite of those things? Right? If you struggle with lust as a person, you objectify people by lust, then what does it mean to humanize that person? What, do it mean, what does it mean to look at that person and just see the fullness of that person and not the way in which you consume them by objectifying them? If it's, if it's struggling with judgmental thoughts, what does it mean to begin to pray and ask God, God, help me to rejoice in this person and their particular strengths. Help me to rejoice in their successes instead of feeling the need to put them down because I didn't achieve the same success as they did. If I'm a person who goes around life trying to impress everyone and get what I want by competence and toughness, what does it mean to begin to be vulnerable like Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself? What does it look like to begin to live in that way? Let me tell you, when you begin to think along these lines, you will see how exciting and risky faith is. It's much easier to just keep living the same way you are living. Part of the power that comes in being able to walk in this newness of life, of being able to bring to life the goodness in which God sees in us already, is to be able to know that God is going to achieve this in you. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace in our life. He will bring it to the end. Yes, we must cooperate again, but he will bring it to the end. And one, and one of the things is just being able to say, I know God is going to achieve this in me. God is going to redeem me and deliver me from the power of sin in my life. And so it's like anticipating, living out of an anticipation of what God is going to do. Studies have actually shown that if you plan your vacation way ahead of time, it impacts how you live your life leading up to that vacation. I, think, I can't remember, but I think they even said the ideal time frame in which to plan your vacation, whatever, is eight months ahead of time, and then, you know, that gives you sufficient time to do it and to have this anticipation of, okay, next June, I'm going to be doing this. So I'm, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to stay focused. I'm going to, whatever it is, you know, just almost living out of anticipation for that joy. And, and I can relate to that. I mean, we're not usually great about planning way ahead of time, but uh, we had this, you know, extended family vacation two summers ago where uh, my parents took us on a cruise to Alaska, something that we could never have afforded on our own. And so it was planned a year ahead of time. And like our whole family, my wife, my three boys, we were just like, 
you know, like, okay, 10 months to go now. Okay, eight months to go now. Okay, five months, one month. You know, just like, just like getting so excited and, and really living in a way to get ready for that day. It's harder, but it's not that different in our walk with God. We can trust that God is going to do this work in us and will make us more like Jesus, make us into the image of who he had always intended for us to be. We can live with that freedom and that joy and say, God, I'm going to continue to walk with you in joy and trust that you are at work in me. I'm going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit that is in me so that I can become more like Jesus. And there's always a temptation in that when we see, again, the freeness of this gospel. And Paul addresses it two times. Verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. It's just a reality of living in a broken life. It's easy for us to take free things for granted. If it's free, we're going to be tempted to take it for granted. It could be air, take it for granted. It could be simple beauties in life, the beauty of the creation around us. It could be our health. It could be the love of our spouse, our family, our friends, our children. We can take it for granted because it's free, because we didn't have to work for it. And yet it's the same thing with our relationship with God, this good news. We can take it for granted because it is free for us. Christ paid the price on the cross for us, and it is free for us simply to be received by faith. And when we understand how free it is, we will always be tempted, as Paul addresses, to say, well, let me just sin so that more grace can come. Let me just sin because it doesn't matter. You know, the law is irrelevant now. God's laws are relevant. It doesn't matter what I do. God's law didn't become irrelevant. God's goodness didn't stop becoming goodness. When when Paul says, we are not under law, but under grace, he's saying we no longer live in a way where we're trying to make ourselves right before God by our own efforts. We are not under law. We've been received into God's presence through faith. We are under grace. We are motivated by grace. We are motivated by love. We are not motivated by fear, by punishment. We are not motivated by rule-keeping. We are motivated simply by the grace of God, looking forward to who he will make us into, into Christ's likeness, so that glory may be brought to him and good may be brought to the people around us, to the world. So I hope that as you go out into the world, that the way you relate to the world is this reflective, responsive faith to what Christ has done and is doing in you through the Holy Spirit. And that the way you relate to the world is not just, I'm going to keep these rules because I hope that if I keep these rules really good, God's going to love me more. God's already loved you to the max. You are free. Live as those who are free, seeking to die more and more into sin, to live more and more unto uh, unto righteousness, because you are under grace. Let's pray.